The following message is by Pastor Brandon Dyer of Windsor Christian Fellowship. For more information on our church, visit www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. The year is approximately 1400 B.C. The people of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness with Moses as their leader, despite their many failings, despite all of their problems and the struggles that they've had within the wilderness wanderings, God is still their God. They are still in covenant with God. He has given them much of the law. He has given them the Ten Commandments. Yet over and over and over again, we see even within the book of Numbers, that the people of God, the Israelites, are a Stiff-necked people. They are an obstinate people. Very difficult to deal with. But it's not only as, as though the, the people themselves had failed, but even their leaders had failed. God commanded Moses to speak to a rock to open and for the water to come forth for the people to drink from. But instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock as he had done a time before, disobeying clearly the word of the Lord. Aaron and Miriam, the brother and sister of Moses, they had also uh, dishonored God and they spoke out against the leadership of Moses. To say the least, at this point in the book of Numbers, the people of God and the leadership of God's people were in extreme disarray. They had disobeyed their God. In fact, by Numbers chapter 21, Miriam is dead. Aaron is dead. And Moses is left to continue in the wandering in the wilderness with this thankless and rebellious people known as the Israelites. Yet although this is true, Numbers chapter 21 actually begins with a positive note. The Israelites actually conquer the Canaanites and they utterly destroy these cities that the Canaanites were dwelling in. But as the chapter continues, things do not stay Positive. And so we come to Numbers chapter 21, beginning in verse 4. Why don't you look there with me, and we'll read to verse 9. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. So the people had had this great conquest over these Canaanites. And it was given to them clearly by God. But you notice that the first thing that they do within verses 4 and 5, after conquering these Canaanites, is they begin to grow impatient. Right? Any of you struggle with impatience? But as a whole, these thousands and thousands and thousands of Israelites, God gives them this great victory, and then immediately they begin to grow 
impatient. You can almost hear the angst within their voice as they're talking to Moses in one accord. They say to him, why did you take us out of the land of Egypt? Well, for crying out loud, they were in Egypt for 400 years as slaves, right? And they're asking, why did you take us away from slavery? Terrible question to ask, right? But they ask him, nonetheless, why did you take us out of Egypt to die, right? They say there's no food. They say there's no Water. In fact, the text says that what the Israelites had to say about the food was, we loathe this worthless food. Another translation of that would be, we loathe this worthless bread. Now, what in the world is, are they talking about? What is this worthless food that the Israelites are bringing up here to Moses? Well, they're referring to manna, Right? They're referring to the manna that God had been providing for them day after day, every day but the Sabbath day, six days a week. They would walk out of their tent without even opening their eyes. They knew on Monday morning when they went outside that there was going to be manna all over the ground, this white bready stuff that they would take then and burn or make into cakes and so forth. And they knew that this was going to be the case every single day. The manna would be on the ground. And what is the manna really representative of? Certainly we know in John chapter 6 that Christ is the bread from heaven that comes down. But certainly at this they wouldn't have quite made that correlation. But it's a big deal that they are calling this manna uh, worthless or loathsome because this manna is only given to them by the grace of God. For no other reason but that God was going to be gracious and he was going to provide this manna for his people. So it's a big deal that they call it worthless or miserable because this wasn't just any bread. It's not like they went out and they grew the grain and they brought it in and ground it and so forth and made the bread. This was bread, this was manna that was given to them directly by God, directly given to them by his own Grace. So my fellow husbands, I have a question for you. If your wife sets dinner before you, and you look at it and you say, what is this worthless food? Do you think her reaction is going to be very positive? No. The food isn't going to be offended, right? That, that soup that you didn't want for dinner, that you refer to as loathsome, if you say, what is this worthless food? The soup is not going to be offended that you said that. But who is going to be offended? Your wife is going to be offended. And it's the same here with these Israelites. What is this worthless manna that is laying on the ground every single morning? Well, the manna doesn't take offense to it. The manna doesn't care that they call it loathsome. But who would? Well, God. So that here the Israelites are literally spurning the gracious gift of God. That God would graciously give them this manna. And they would, it's loathsome. Certainly offensive to the giver, right? Offensive to the provider of that meal for them. So how do you think the Lord would respond? Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people in Israel died. So the Lord sends snakes. The snakes bite the people. And many of Israel died. And I think that we like to ask the question concerning judgment, concerning punishment. Does the punishment fit the crime? Right. The crime of complaining and spurning the gracious gifts of God. 
Fiery snakes coming because of what came out of their mouth concerning what God had given them. Does the punishment fit the crime? And my initial response to that is, God, don't, don't you think you went a little overboard here, right? They, they complained a little bit. They grew impatient. They didn't want that loathsome food, right? But don't you think that fiery serpent's coming and biting and killing thousands of people? Don't you think that's a little bit overboard? But after further reflection, I have to say, concerning does the punishment fit the crime? No. The punishment did not fit the crime. In fact, they deserved much worse. Any one sin of any kind requires death and judgment in hell forever. This thing about a holy God, right? He's holy, holy, holy God, the thrice holy God. Well, not one little sin can be in His presence. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And us as sinners, we cannot come to Him and be in His presence. So even just that slight complaining, even if that was the first sin that anybody had ever committed at that period, if that was the only thing they had ever done wrong, it was worthy of a much, much worse punishment than that of what God gave them. So although this is a terrible punishment, it, isn't, it is nonetheless a gracious punishment because there were people who were spared. Well, look at the response of the people in verse 7 to the fiery serpents. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord so that he'll take the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So the people come to Moses after this great judgment that God has sent to them. And they say, Moses, please go to God on our behalf. Please, as our intercessor, please go to God and ask Him and tell Him that we are sorry. We realize that we have sinned. And so Moses goes and he does just that. But notice with me in verse 9, or excuse me, in verse... um, Yeah, in verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. So the people come to Moses and they say, Please pray to the Lord that the Lord will take away these serpents from us. But notice that the Lord does not take away the serpents. He doesn't take away the serpents. The serpents are still there. But what does God provide? Instead of taking away the serpents, he provides another serpent. He has Moses come and make a bronze snake. So he provides for the people a gracious symbol. A symbol of his grace. Now consider with me these people. Bitten, right? Bitten by these snakes. You can imagine in extreme pain. The moaning and the groaning throughout the whole camp. So many people in pain that you really can't even know who to help first. Thousands upon thousands of them. And among all of these people, I think that we can assume that there were those who were in relationship with God. That they loved God, right? That they believed in God. And that maybe even had faith to see these things and to believe. But then there were others who didn't. There were others who did not believe in God. So there would, within all of these people that had been bitten, there were people who may have genuinely loved God, and then there would have been others who did not love God. Maybe those who were genuine worshipers of Yahweh, and some of them maybe who had recently worshipped an idol, or had recently spurned the word of the Lord, or whatever. So some of them may have thought, you can imagine what going through the camp, all of them are ailing from this bite, right? 
Going through our, what? What did God tell Moses to do? We asked that God would take the serpents out of the camp and get rid of them. What did God do? He had them, had Moses build this bronze snake. So you can imagine the people, what in the world is a bronze snake going to do? I don't want to see another snake for the rest of my life. Others may have thought, well, I believe in Yahweh, and so that I'll, I'll, I'll just go ahead and trust that he'll heal me through this bronze snake. Whatever. There could have been both sides of the spectrum and everywhere in between. I believe this could work. I doubt that this will work. But what I want to submit to you this morning is that it did not matter where they were in regards to their faith in God. Whoever looked upon that snake would have physical health and life. That's the truth. They could have worshipped God and offered a sacrifice the day before. And then the day before, others could have said, sworn against God's name and could have cared less. It didn't matter. If you looked at that snake, you were healed. You were given physical life. So hear this point. That it was not the physical faith that these people could muster up that would save them from death. It was the power of the symbol that God provided to them by His grace that saved them. So the power was in the symbol. The power was not in themselves. Is that not the whole point, even in regards to our salvation? That the power is not in ourselves to make ourselves better and to make ourselves more like Christ and to make ourselves more sanctified and holy and on and on. No, it's in the power of the symbol. It's in the power of Christ to give us these things. So regardless of where these people were on this spectrum, it didn't matter. All growing up, I was taught this so wrong. I was taught that, oh, there were some people who didn't look. There were some people who just didn't obey God and and didn't look. The, The text doesn't say anything like that. It says that anyone, in verse 9, who looked upon that snake would live. That's what it says in verse 9. That anyone who was bit by the serpent, he would look at that bronze serpent and he would live. It is not the power in and of yourselves to make yourself have that faith. It is the power that's in the symbol. So Moses comes and he fashions this bronze snake and he puts it on a pole and he holds it up and the people look upon that and all of a sudden they're totally healed. Totally healed. God caring graciously for his people. But I want you to remember what got them into this problem in the first place. They had spurned the grace of God, right? What is this worthless food? What is this loathsome bread? We don't want this manna any more. They had spurned the grace of God. They were ungrateful for God's gracious provision. But there is another extreme that can be taken in regards to gracious, God's gracious gifts as well. And that is our tendency to idolize things, right? So there are really two sides of this whole spectrum concerning God's gracious gifts that He gives to us. We can either go to one extreme and be totally ungrateful and not even care that God has given us this gracious gift. But then on the other side, we can idolize His gracious gifts, can't we? In our twisted way, in our twisted hearts, we can idle the good, gracious gifts of God. So at this point, when the snakes are biting all these people, 1400 B.C., the people of God spurned God's gracious gifts. But 700 years later, they would idolize God's gift. Turn with me now to 2 Kings chapter 18.
So we fast forward now to about the year 715 BC, which is 700 years after the people of Israel were bit by snakes. They are now in the land of Canaan, the kingdom that had been set up. You remember that Saul was the first king, and then David, and then Solomon. After Solomon was king, the, 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 uh, the kingdom splits into two. And so now we have a southern kingdom, and we have a northern kingdom. And so in the kingdom of Judah, there arises this great king named Hezekiah, and he was a descendant of King David. And it's said of this king Hezekiah within 2 Kings chapter 18 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And we see that in 2 Kings 18 beginning in verse 4. Why don't you look there with me? So this is, what, this is talking about King Hezekiah and what he is doing. He, Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So they took the gift of God that had given them physical health and life 700 years prior. They took the gift of God and they turned it into an idol. Talk about coming around full swing, right? From going to, to hating God's gifts to now idolizing this snake. And Hezekiah takes this snake and he breaks it into a million pieces, right? Not because he hated it. I mean, you can imagine the historical value of this bronze snake, right? 700-year-old bronze snake in the possession of the Israelites. And Hezekiah takes this 700-year snake that Moses himself, this great leader of Israel, he takes this snake and he breaks it into pieces, but he would not allow idols in the land, no matter what their origination was from. He didn't care where it came from. It was an idol in the land, and it had to go. He was doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I think when we look at the Israelites, and we look at really all of these ancient civilizations, but particularly the Israelites, and we think about the fact that they would worship these things. So literally, a bronze snake, and they would worship. Whatever they would do, pray to it, or bow down to it, or burn things for it, or whatever the case was, they would worship these things. And sometimes we can think, how primitive. How cute. That's that's how I feel about a lot of this idol worship. Whoa, how stupid, right? How silly for them to gather around this snake and worship it. I mean, just kind of like the, the silly Israelites. They're worshiping this snake. But don't get lost in what they're worshiping. What matters is what they're worshiping from, right? The problem is deeply rooted within their hearts. That's where the problem lies. Their worship of the snake is not because the the snake actually is amazing or that it has done amazing things for them. It's not that at all. It's coming from their own wicked hearts. One commentator has said that uh, that the heart is an idol factory, and I think that that is totally true. Our hearts are idol factories. We are constantly creating and making idols within our own hearts, producing them. We are always coming up with something else to worship, something else to take the place of God in our lives, taking even the good gifts that He has given to us and twisting them and perverting them and making them central in our lives instead of God. I'm convinced that we are not that far off from the Israelites. 
Oh, how cute and primitive there, worshiping a prawn snake. No, we are not that far away from doing that sort of thing. Tim Keller describes an idol as anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. We often take the good gifts of God and totally twist them into our own little idols. Our children and their pursuits, idol. Our grandchildren, good gift from God, idol. Money, meant to use for certain purposes, idol. Food, meant to sustain us, idol. Patriotism, good, idol. Exercise, idol. Work, something God-given for us to do, idol. You can name any one thing. Those are all good things. You can name any one of those things. And within our wicked hearts, we can twist them and turn them into idols. Just like God, just like Israel took this bronze snake and twisted it into an idol. Which gifts that God has given to you have you taken and twisted and fashioned into an idol in your life? What has God given to you that you say, okay, God, can I move you out of the way and I'm going to bring this up central in my life and this is going to be what gives me my satisfaction. What have you taken that God has given you and done that with? There are so many things that we can allow into our lives that quickly eclipse. I mean, we're not even talking about bad things. We're not even talking about spending hours and hours in front of video games and TV and doing all sorts of things, whatever it is, and using that as an... We're talking about good things that God has given to us. That become idols in our lives. What is in your life? Think about it. What is in your life that is eclipsing Christ? So are we really that different from the silly Israelites who took the gift of God and twisted it into an idol? I don't think so. So the question has to be, so how do we deal with it? How do we deal with the idols that are within our life? If The people of Israel, when they were bit by the snake, God gives them a symbol and they look to that symbol and they have physical life then. Okay, well that's great. That was their way of overcoming that. But how do we deal with it? If it's true that our hearts are idol factories and we take God's gifts and we turn them into idols, then how do we deal with them? The truth is, we, like the Israelites, we need a symbol. We need something to look to, to give us life. The bronze serpent was... was, Gave, gave physical health. It restored that life. But the problem was that the bronze snake did not deal with their sin. Are we clear on that? The bronze snake, when Moses lifted it up, it did not deal with their sin. It could not make atonement for their sin. They had the sacrificial system to do that. But the bronze snake could not deal with their sin, which is what they really needed, which was with a problem in the first place. Their ungratefulness to God, they needed to deal with that sin. And we need a symbol. Not to deal with our physical life. We need a symbol to deal with our spiritual life. The bronze serpent could not extend forgiveness or give eternal life. It could simply only heal and give physical life. But there was another symbol that was given that could and would provide the spiritual eternal life that we also desperately need. So fast forward with me another 700 years to John chapter 3. We began with Moses in 1400 B.C. We got to Hezekiah in 700 B.C. And now we're in the thick of Jesus' ministry in the early first part of the first century. 
And in John chapter 3, we have this famous conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and Jesus begins to tell him that he needs to be born again. This is where we get that famous, well, you need to be born again. Jesus was telling Nicodemus this is what he needed to do. This is what needed to happen within his own life in order to see the kingdom of God. And he tells him that it's the Spirit of God that causes this life. And there's so much more within John chapter 3. But look with me, beginning in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You ever heard that verse before? You ever seen it off to the side on a highway somewhere? You ever seen it on eye black on certain football players? But even as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man would need to be lifted up. Now what we have is called, what we have here is called typology. The serpent that Moses fashioned in Numbers chapter 21 was a type of Christ. When you look and you read Numbers chapter 21 and you see that bronze snake lifted, that points us to Jesus. It is a type of Christ. But what was, what was that serpent lifted up in the wilderness to give? Again, we've covered this. It was given, it was lifted to give given physical life, physical health. But what was Christ lifted up to give? Eternal life. Notice again, like in the Numbers passage, God didn't take away the snakes from Numbers chapter 21. Within that. He didn't take the snakes away from the camp. But he provided the snake to be looked at and to give life. In the same way, God has not taken away the snakes of indwelling sin in our own life. He has not taken away all of our idolatries and all of our sin struggles the moment upon conversion. Yet He has provided His Son, the Son of Man, as a symbol, right? So the Son of Man has been lifted up. So now in our struggles and our battles and all the things that we face, where do we look to? Well, that's the problem with idols. When the idol is there, we look to the idol. But when Christ is there, we look to Christ. And it is here that we must lift our eyes to see the suffering symbol. To see Christ dying on our behalf. To see Him bleeding on our behalf. Have you looked to Christ? Do you know Jesus? Have you looked to this suffering symbol in order to have this eternal life? The text is clear. Jesus says that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Do you believe in this suffering symbol? Is this where your faith lies? Has has the lifted Christ, has this lifted symbol, has it drawn your gaze? Is that where your gaze is? Is that where your eyes rest? And, and, And this week, surely, we have all had our struggles. We've all had our failures. We've all had struggles with sin and problems and idolatry. But where do your eyes find their rest? Where do your eyes settle? It has to be on the suffering symbol. 
This is where the remedy is found. Like, like the Israelites lying in the camp and bitten by snakes. Where was the power going to be found? Not in themselves. It was going to be found by looking at that bronze serpent, that symbol. And the same with us. Those who are plagued with sin, where do we look? Where is our remedy? It is in the symbol. It is in the lifted Christ, you do not have the power in and of yourself to conquer your own sin. The power is in Christ. And the joy is that it doesn't matter where you feel that you're at. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're rock solid in your faith today. It doesn't matter if your knees are trembling and you feel like one of those that Jesus refers to as, oh, you of little faith. What matters is where your eyes rest. That's where the remedy is. It's in the suffering symbol. Those who look at the powerful symbol of Christ will experience the power of God that can only come through looking at the lifted suffering symbol. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. Oh, Father, be gracious to us. We ask you to lift our eyes to yourself to see the suffering symbol there, dying on our behalf, realizing that that is where power comes from. Not our own power, but the power of Christ given to us. We thank you. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who have never looked upon the symbol, that you will draw their eyes there. For those of us who have been healed, we readily admit that we are constantly being bitten. We are constantly sinning. And so I pray, Lord, again, that you'll draw our eyes back to you constantly as we sin. We thank you for this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Brandon Dyer, pastor of Windsor Christian Fellowship in Windsor, Maine. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge them or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our church online at www.windsorchristianfellowship.org. There, you'll find sermons and other information about our church. If you have a need or would like further information, call 242-0126 or email us at wcfmaine at gmail.com. Our mailing address is Windsor Christian Fellowship, 11 Reed Road, Windsor, Maine, 04363. Windsor Christian Fellowship exists to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ through the evangelization of unbelievers and the edification of believers so that all might be glad in God.